Have you ever thought about buying a racehorse online? It's happened, and not just any horse. Is it a sign of things to come? Plus, we could all use a refresher on the use of social media after what happened following a recent race at Tampa Bay Downs. Your compliance training is on the way on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. It's a move to the top of the stretch. It's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN ESPN app. You can buy anything online these days. Pet food? Sure. Medicine? Yeah. A car? I wouldn't, but I know it happens. How about a racehorse? That's now happened too. And not just any racehorse. Last year's winner of the Kentucky Derby of Harness Racing. It is Atlanta, the Philly. It's got Saran trying to keep her going. Trying to track her down. Crystal Fashion Mets Hall on the outside. Tactical landing on the inside. Almost there. Atlanta. Scott Ciron rocking, whipping, driving, and the Philly does it! Atlanta in 150-4 wins the Hamiltonian. That was last August, of course. Fast forward to now, where because of a problem involving one of Atlanta's owners which for the purpose of this discussion is not important, the rest of the ownership group wanted to find someone to buy that owner out. The group listed her on a standard bread website, basically as an auction. A lady in upstate New York won the bid and, essentially sight unseen, is now part owner of this filly. Of course, that got us to thinking. Would such a thing ever happen in the thoroughbred world? Virtual technology has become so prevalent in our society, you can now take a virtual walking tour of any city in the world. If you're willing to put on special glasses, you can immerse yourself completely in a virtual reality experience around a football or basketball game. And even if you're not into that level of technology, cell phone cameras take pretty good pictures nowadays, so you can tell a lot about a horse's neck and withers and legs even without being there. So in my lifetime, and I'm not that old, might we see a major horse auction done online rather than in person? It's a fascinating question. So to help put this crazy idea into perspective, we have with us a couple of prominent horsemen who are experienced enough to understand the differences between the virtual and the in-person horse evaluation, but who are also young enough that they embrace technology more so than, say, Wayne Lucas does. Joining us are Bloodstock agent Brad Weisbord, who's worked the sales over the years for a number of major movers and shakers in the thoroughbred business, including Al Shakab Racing, Windstar Farm, and Zayat Stables. He's also the youngest person ever, age 28, to be voted onto the Breeders' Cup board. And joining us as well is Graham Motion, who trained, among others, the 2011 Kentucky Derby winner Animal Kingdom. He is a spirited user of social media, to which anyone who follows him will attest. Thanks, gentlemen, for being here. Let's start with Mr. Weisbord. You, more often than not, approach horses from an ownership standpoint. 
since you largely represent owners at the sales. What did you think when you heard about the Hamiltonian winner being sold online? I was actually lucky enough about a week before that, randomly, to go see the the, the Philly in her box in South Florida at the training center. Frank Antonacci is a good friend of mine. Dave Reed, preferred equine. Dave actually took me by the barn, and I wasn't familiar with the Philly going up for auction, but I happened to ask a few questions. I am not that familiar with that side of that sport at, or that sport at all. I'm strictly into thoroughbreds, so I don't want to comment too much about her herself. My understanding was she won, obviously, the Hamiltonian, one of the biggest races, and this year there was a couple of good fillies she would have to run against, and there was a buyout of the trainer. Um, he was selling his interest because of some a fallout with the owners, and it was put up online. I do think that the online marketplace, and I think we'll get into this, is going to be involved in both thoroughbreds and harness horses eventually. I'm not sure that time is now in the thoroughbred world, although clearly it's now in, in their world, and it seemed to at least work to some regard. Graham Motion, when you go to a horse sale, it would seem to me there are three ways to judge a horse. Reading the pedigree, seeing the horse standing there, and then watching a breeze if it's a breeze-up sale. What's the difference between doing all three of those in person as opposed to watching pictures and video on your computer or your phone? Yeah, I don't think you're ever going to get away from actually physically looking at the individual. I think that I can certainly envision a scenario where we start to sell online, but I think the same groundwork will go into looking at the horse as a physical specimen perhaps watching the video, although that also can be done on a, on a computer, on a laptop. But I think the physical inspection of a horse is always going to be necessary before you were entertaining the idea of buying a horse online. Why? I mean, what is the difference? Well, more so with a horse that's actually in training, as in a two-year-old in a training sale, or, or an older horse that Brad deals with a lot is, is actually purchasing horses out of a racing stable. You know, whether it's a physical inspection by the agent or on, as well as the physical inspection by a veterinarian, which is going to be so important. Just like any athlete, you want to be sure that what you're buying is, is going to be able to hold up to the rigors of what you're going to be asking it to do. Brad Weisbord, with turf racing becoming more prominent in this country in the last decade or so, a topic we've covered here on In the Gate, and even with a potential Kentucky Derby horse like War of Will in Louisiana having been purchased in France, the world is becoming a smaller place. How hard is it for owners, trainers, and of course bloodstock agents like you to get to all of these places over the course of a year? I mean, it's hard and it's costly. You really need uh, two really important things. Number one, you, you need owners that are willing to spend. You know, in the case of War of Will, Gary Barber is one of the greatest supporters we have of thoroughbred racing. And he would spend be, via breeding his own horses. He would spend in American yearling sales, in European uh, two-year-old sales, and also on the private market. So he's a very game buyer. And uh, Justin Cassie, who purchased the horse for him, is lucky that, that he would have that account to buy a lot of these horses. That's really the crucial thing. You can get anywhere. I was just in Doha, Qatar. You know, that's in the Middle East, and I was there just a couple of days and, and home. So 
the agent needs to be willing to travel. But most importantly, I think if you were an owner and wanted to get into other parts of the world, you should hire somebody that's very familiar with that territory. We've had a lot of luck, uh, Graham and I even together, uh, last year with a filly called The Way I Am. She was purchased in France privately, and I, I worked with an agent called Nick the Watcher Gant, a Mandor International. So I'm a big believer of finding an expert in that area rather than doing it myself and partnering up to try to be successful. So, Mr. Motion, how tempting is it for you to cut out some of that horse sale travel? Well, for me personally, and I think any of the top trainers, you can't do it on your own. You have to have somebody who's going to be your eyes and your ears covering a lot of the horses. For example, at the September sales, you know, somebody will usually go around at the big sale at Keeneland when there's thousands of horses selling. Somebody will usually go around ahead of you and actually cut the, the size of the numbers that you're going to look at because to do it properly, you really need to spend a week or so just looking at the individuals. And I think for a horse trainer, that, that's a very hard thing to do to spend that much time to do it properly. Now, if online sales were to actually become a thing... How do you think it would affect the little guy, the smaller trainers who are wondering whether they can still make a living in this sport? I mean, I think it opens it up for everybody. I mean, we're not that far away from this. There's already certain situations where an owner or an agent will call into the sales company so that they're on the phone while the bidding is going on. So I don't really see what this is taking it to the next level, bidding online, but we're not really that far removed from it. And certainly... I think it makes it a lot easier for everybody, and it makes a lot of sense in, in the times that we live in. Brad Weisbord, based on a number of factors, including the need to keep smaller time owners and trainers in the sport for the sake of competition, do you see a day where economics will dictate the need to keep travel costs down and promote greater participation in sales by these smaller time trainers through the use of online auctions? Yeah, I mean, it's a large question. I'm not sure online auctions and keep the costs for people down are directly related as much as I do think online auctions can be very beneficial for timing of sales. And I don't think online auctions are going to replace the yearling sales. As Graham spoke about, the need to touch, see, look at a horse will always be there when you're coming to really yearling or even two-year-old in training sales. I do think online auctions are the wave of the future and our time is now when you have private something that I do a lot now, where if you want to race on Gulfstream on a Saturday, on next, the following Saturday, it could be advertised this horse, uh, half the horse or all the horses could be sold online and you give people 48 hours prior to the auction to inspect and vet. And the horse would simply go up online. I think that is coming. I'm surprised it's not here just yet. And uh, as, as we spoke about, my, my dad started equine commerce probably 10 years ago, which was this sort of purpose. And it fizzled out pretty quickly, mainly because he couldn't get good enough product on the website. And I do think you need good product to get people interested. You're not going to be able to sell claimers online, but you will be able to sell a winner at Laurel or a winner at Aqueduct or a winner at Gulfstream online privately. I think that's coming and it's coming quickly. 
And again, I mean, we are selling breeding rights online already. So I, I just don't think we're that far away from it. And I think the example Brad is giving for an individual horse who perhaps has achieved something on any given weekend or, or even just a, a very small selective boutique type sale of horses in training is somewhere where this could be very well uh, utilized as a, as, a, as a mode to sell them. I think it's a great idea. Wait, do I sense there really might be progress in the thoroughbred world using technology? I thought that was like contractually forbidden. Well, this is a very interesting topic, and we appreciate so much Brad Weisbord and Graham Motion for sharing some of these thoughts with us. Great. Thank you. Take care. A race at Tampa Bay Downs created an Internet firestorm, and as you might imagine, there was quite a bit of misinformation flowing. So, folks, we all need to take our medicine with a dose of Social Media 101. I know it's tough, but this will do you some good, so please stick around. Welcome back to the In The Gate Podcast. On an otherwise forgettable Wednesday afternoon at Tampa Bay Downs, jockey Daniel Centeno, who was perennially one of the track's leading riders, was aboard a favorite who had a measured lead in deep stretch. Suddenly, out of seemingly nowhere, Centeno was unseated just a couple of hundred yards from the wire. We would have played the audio of it for you, but track announcer Roger Houston just went silent from the shock of what he was seeing. Of course, the horse, our baby driver, became ineligible to win the race, and the horses right behind that finished 1-2 were huge long shots, which triggered big payoffs. Immediately, observers took to social media with all kinds of theories— including a conspiracy theory that the outcome was fixed and that Centeno had purposely jumped off the horse. Longtime racing journalist John Pritchie, now of the website Horse Race Insider, did a cursory examination of the payoff data and found nothing egregious, nothing to suggest that anything insidious was going on. That said, we have not seen any real explanation for why Centeno was unseated. The part we want to discuss here on the show, though, is the social media component, the rush to judgment. I think we all need a little perspective on how best to use social media and where it could help and where it could hurt. So to do that, we welcome to the show Professor Karen North. She is a professor of digital social media at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Southern California. She's also worked in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy during the Clinton administration. So surely Professor North can give us a refresh on social media best practices. So let's start with this. Journalists spend many years and tens of thousands of their parents' dollars going to school to learn how to report and publicly digest the news. And for centuries, the only real news outlets out there employed these trained reporters and editors. Now, of course, the public can weigh in. What trends have you seen about how public perspective on social media has affected our consumption of the news? It's an amazingly good question. I mean, I have to say that probably the most important thing for people to recognize is that it used to be that we would go to the same news sources. We would watch the evening news. We would read the big newspapers. And then we would gather in like-minded groups to develop our opinions about the news. But today what happens is a lot of people receive their news through social media. And when social media sends you news stories, it doesn't send each of us the same news stories. Instead, the algorithms, the sort of mathematical computer-coded formulas 
that decide what you want to see and what I want to see, they curate it and they send us what would be most appealing to us individually. So we get more opinion than we get news. Instead of getting the actual news that we all hear and then talk to like-minded people, there are basically opinion leaders who are usually not trained reporters who put up opinions about the news and that ends up being shared by the algorithms very frequently. So what I see is news with a spin that appeals to me and what you see is news with a spin that appeals to you. So the, and that's the biggest shift in news is that news is now really conflated with opinion. Well, here's another thing to make it more difficult to discern news from opinion. You know that more often today than in previous years, you might get a spam email or text that looks very realistic unless you look at the sender's email address. And even then, the address could be pretty close to something legit with just a one-digit change, perhaps. Well, the same, I would think, could be said of what you see on social media. So how difficult is it for the average citizen to discern what's coming from a trained reporter versus Joe Sixpack or a bot? You know, if we were paid to make that determination, if it became important to us, perhaps we would be able to do it. But most people really don't have the time or the inclination to try to make a decision about the validity of everything that comes to them. They just sort of glance at things and digest them casually. And so what ends up happening is that people see what appears to be news. They assume it's news and they accept the information as if it were newsworthy. And, you know, I'll tell you, we learned a lot about this situation through the Cambridge Analytica scandal that happened during the election. And, you know, what if you if you think about that and most people don't really realize this, not only was fake news for the purpose of persuasion and influence and meddling put into people's social media feed. But in addition to that, for people who saw news stories, their Internet would be filled with what looked like little pop up news stories, like recommended stories. But a lot of those recommended stories were not from legitimate news sources. They were headlines that were manufactured to go along with the stories that we saw in social media, which looks like corroborating evidence. It looks like, oh, I saw that on social media, and oh, look, there's a headline from the news. But it wasn't really a headline from the news. It was essentially an ad that looked like news. Wow. I didn't re- – I, I mean, I've, we've all seen them. I've seen them. I didn't realize that was the dynamic behind it. What a lot of people don't realize is that – when you click on an item that you're interested in or when you, when you search for something and you click on it, that the data that you've shown an interest in that could be collected by, for example, Facebook or other entities. And then that knowledge that you're interested in that could be used for advertising purposes. So you click on an item and you maybe, maybe look at it, maybe put it in a shopping cart, and then your Internet world ends up having pop-up ads for that item. The same mechanism that allows advertisers to advertise a product that you were interested in allows influencers to advertise news stories that may or may not be newsworthy. The reason that this works is that social networks, part of what they do is they curate experiences for you. They figure out from keywords and from actions and clicks and likes what you're interested in and what's engaging to you. And then they feed you more and more of that and less and less of things that you don't like and that you're not interested in. 
And so they can do that to help you decide which of your friends to follow or what stories or posts to look at. They can also do it to show you what news you like because it has the spin and the topics that appeal to you. And they can also do that. For, they can also sell that access to people who want to influence you. Well, two things. First of all, I have come to loathe the term influencer and all that goes <laughs> with that. And I have a feeling I have a kindred spirit in that. Number two, I have a college classmate who was one of the forerunners of using big data to target advertising. And I keep blaming him for all of this. It is his fault, whoever he is. Yeah, he's he's made a lot of money, God bless him. But I, I find him personally responsible for all this. So is the answer as simple, especially as relates to this horse racing example at Tampa Bay Downs, is the answer as simple as saying, don't rush to judgment? Or are there bigger dynamics at work here? Well, okay, so the problem that you have with the horse race is that it's where the sort of algorithms and technical manipulation of what you see in social media meets the psychological phenomena that govern how people actually participate in gossip and conspiracy. So it's both things. It's both human and it's machine. It's human and it's the algorithms or the, the, you know, it's the, um, so we've talked a little bit about how mechanically the um, algorithms and the social networks will share information with you. And in the case of your horse racing, people who showed an interest in that particular event and people who, you know, used keywords or hit like or read things were then they targeted themselves for all of the social networks and these sort of news sources to send them more information and more experiences about that. But the other part of that is that, and you know, my PhD is in psychology. So when you step away from that and just look at the human behavior of it, people really like conspiracy theories and people like gossip. And when, especially when something happens that's sort of shocking and out of the ordinary, one of the primary motivators of humans is that we do not like uncertainty. We like the world to be predictable and we like to understand it. And we like to know what's going to happen. And we like to believe that things happen because, because of logic. And so when you take something really out of the ordinary, we search for meaning or order. We, we want it to feel like it made sense. And conspiracies are very appealing for people who are disturbed by the uncertainty or the, you know, like an odd, unpredictable event. If it's a conspiracy, then, oh, that makes sense. That happened not by accident. It couldn't happen to me. It happened because somebody manipulated the world in that way. So this was a situation where something really shocking and unpredictable happened. Somebody came up with a conspiracy theory. It's very appealing to people. And even people who are slightly interested in it, who took a look at that conspiracy theory, were then fed more and more and more information about it because the mechanical actions of social media saw that there was an interest and decided to curate that as a preferred activity or preferred stream of information. Our guest here on In the Gate is Professor Karen North of the Annenberg School of Communication at USC. Now, you teach companies how to use social media and digital media to bring people together online. So let's use Tampa Bay Downs as a company looking to bring its customers together. What could a company like Tampa Bay have done in this instance to use social media to help the situation rather than 
quietly allowing the zingers to keep piling up? Well, I mean, the unfortunate thing for them is that the more, you know, exciting and appealing information is, the more people will click on it just for the entertainment or shock value. And it's a little bit hard to be the calm bearer of boring truth than it is to be the exciting, the exciting, you know, um, conspiracy theory. But what they should have done, you know, it's if, if you have truth on your side, then you should not be quiet these days. We, we talk about how in the situation, if there's a crisis communication situation, you probably have, you know, the joke is 30 seconds, but it might, might be 30 or 90 seconds to shoot out a response because otherwise you can become sort of irrelevant in the conversation about yourself. So they really needed to be out there right away saying, we heard about this scandal. There was no scandal. This is what happened. And there are a lot of things that they can do to make sure that their opinion keeps showing up, but they needed to get in there and calm people's nerves and get ahead of the algorithm by being a provider of information right away. You just can't wait anymore because, you know, in this real-time environment, especially with things like Twitter, which are so fast not only to provide information, but to then, you know, start curating and trending things, you need to get out there ahead of it. Now, one of the points mentioned by John Preachy of Horse Race Insider is that only through public pressure did Tampa Bay Downs put the head-on replay of the race in question online. Originally, they just had the main camera angle from the grandstand high above the finish line. At least, that's what I read. I was actually unable to find the head-on shot when I went to the Tampa Bay Downs website. Tampa Bay could have sent out social media posts with the head-on of the race, like you said. How much more effective, by the way, is using video in social media messages than just using text? I mean, the, you know, there are, two, there are a couple different schools of thought, but the, the reality is you go back to that age-old phrase, a picture paints a thousand words. And in this day and age where people just click and click and click and glance at things, we know from research that people really, they look at pictures more than they read words anyway. If you even look at dating apps, if people don't put a picture up, then their profile won't be looked at. And, and it's not just dating. It's sort of pictures really draw our attention and we're pretty much hardwired for that. But so two things. One is that to dispel a um, scandal or a conspiracy then they just needed to put up everything right away and say, look, here are all the pictures, here's what happened, and especially pictures, because people will click through the pictures. But the other thing is that once they, once the conspiracy theorists said, ooh, and here's evidence of the conspiracy, there's no head-on picture, they needed to put the head-on picture up available right away. You shouldn't have had to search for it, because in this day and age, people are willing to just go with their conspiracy theories and they won't necessarily investigate beyond that. And so they should have put it there and made it not hard to find, but right there in front of everybody's eyes so that they could dispel that rumor right away. And by the way, and on social media. And we see what kind of invective and unsubstantiated claims can be made on social media, which has nominal filters, depending on which service you're using. I would think that any racetrack's first, any business's first and most important goal should be honesty and transparency. Now, does social media help that pursuit? Or do we think that because unsubstantiated claims are common, that social media doesn't help? I mean, social media both helps and doesn't help. So it is the solution and it's also the problem. 
mean, that, that is the case. Social media can solve problems, but the speed of social media and the fact that, again, we all see a different version of the world because it's curated by our social networks and by the algorithms, the computers that make decisions about what might appeal to us. Social media can be very helpful in telling a story, but you have to remember when you post your information that recipients of the news or recipients of this message may get different versions of it. So the bottom line from an end user standpoint, what are the best practices that the average person should keep in mind when using social media? It's a great question. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the, uh, what I tell people often is, is two things. One is remember that you're getting a curated entertainment experience, not an objective news experience when you're talking about trying to figure out an event. The second thing is that a lot of people have been learning, even young people, that if it's something that they care about, they should go to a trusted source. Don't just read the, quote, news that comes from something that's called news, but you've never heard of it. Instead, read ESPN or the New York Times or something that you that you know to be, you know, a, a real news, like a trusted news source. And then the other thing is that Ordinarily speaking, if somebody's saying that there's a conspiracy, if it's really exciting, let me put it this way, if something is shocking and exciting and it's polarizing, you know, including like political situations these days, remember that the exciting polarizing facts and opinions are easy to share and they're appealing to share, but they're not necessarily true. Like those are the things to be most wary of. If, if you look at a headline or a story or an opinion, and it's shocking, and it's, it pits you against somebody else, then you should think, I wonder whether this is being sent to me because of its extreme, like, entertainment value. And it's, you know, and that's why it's being sent to me. Because that's really how a lot of these situations are spread around. Okay, people, you've had your compliance training now. No more excuses. So thank you so much, Professor North, for providing this. You can't hear these kinds of messages enough in this day and age. Thank you for having me. It's just a, you know great to talk with you. Our thanks to Professor Karen North, Brad Weisbord, and Graham Motion. We're in award show season, and they really can get boring. How many thank you speeches can you hear? Some recipients don't even pay attention when the music interrupts a speech to make the intention clear. To make an award show palatable, you need to add some sizzle, like a musical act or a comedy routine. Well, recently, the Harness Racing Awards had something different that even the Motion Picture Academy's never seen. Foiled Again is a 14-year-old who only recently retired and was given the highest honor in the sport. So when the standard-bred glitterati put on their fancy duds in the ballroom of an Orlando, Florida resort, the horse accompanied his connections onto the dance floor, while everyone assembled gasped and cheered. I don't think this will ever be justified at a thoroughbred award show. Think of the champagne lost if the horse got spooked and reared. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. 
And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's in the gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.